Well, you will remember from our introductory sermon that uh, in his letter to the church in Corinth, this first letter, Paul's addressing at least 10 distinct problems that exist concurrently in the church in Corinth. And you hear that, and you read through it as we have been, all the way to chapter 10 as we are now, and, and the letter kind of airs the Corinthians' dirty laundry, doesn't it? It's kind of what it looks like. It's kind of how we can see that. And, and we can forget that this is indeed one of God's local churches. They're struggling with the same thing that we're struggling with, how to live distinctly Christian lives in a pagan society. That's what they're trying to do. It's what they're doing. It's what we're doing. Corinth is a pagan city filled with pagan temples where everyone worshipped idols. It was an idolatrous society. Every aspect of the societal fabric was woven with idolatry. In politics, because you have to worship Caesar. At work, because each trade guild had its own god and temple that it celebrated at. Even in your neighborhood, each household worshipped its own god and ate meat sacrificed to their idol. Christians in Corinth could not escape pagan society. Just as we can't escape our 21st century pagan society. We live, in, we live in a pluralistic society. People can worship whatever they want. While at the same time, we live in an increasingly secular society. But the one religion that secularism seems to really want to push to the margins is just Christianity. But whether in Corinth or in America, this pressure on the church leads to cracks and divisions. Paul has revealed many divisions in the church in Corinth. And yet... He still refers to them as the church of God, positionally sanctified in Christ, called to progressively be sanctified together in fellowship with Christ and with one another. Even as Paul wraps up and summarizes his answer to the Corinthians' question about eating meals that had been sacrificed to idols in chapter 10, in verse 23, he appeals to the church as his beloved. Despite her divisions... We need to remember that the church in Corinth, like us, has a, has a heart to desire to walk in a manner worthy of God and to witness to Jesus Christ. It's what they want to do. It's what they're trying to do. And that's what Paul is writing to help them to do. And one of the things that Paul is writing to tell them is, get over yourselves. Get over yourselves. Get over your freedom to eat meat sacrificed to idols while not engaging idolatry yourself. He's covered that. And start living for others. Would you just do that? You know, I'm reflecting on this, and I need you to bear with me. We would never, we would never say, Jesus, get over yourself. Perish the thought. We would never say that. Rather, he has, nothing, he has nothing to get over. Rather, rather he's, he's, he has everything to glorify in. That's why the Bible says Jesus is the glory of God. We have a lot in ourselves to get over. And the Spirit and the Word are going to help us to do that for the rest of our lives. As we who are sanctified pursue increasing sanctification. To say, 
less of me and more of him. To be persons who repent of our sin and selfishness and get over ourselves. To be a people who follow the way of Jesus. To be a church that together lives for the glory of God. I think that's what Paul's going after and telling us today. So read along with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're looking at the second half of the chapter, beginning in verse 23. And we're going we're gonna to end on the first verse of chapter 11. It really should be part of this. This is the Word of God. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat markets without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising any question on the grounds of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you, And for the sake of conscience, I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything that I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. If you want to follow along on the sermon outline, you'll see this sermon theme. Jesus has freed us to live in love and service to him, so we should get over ourselves and live in such a way to advantage everyone around us that they might see the glory of God. I think that's a a fair summary of what we're aiming at this morning. And we've been talking a lot about Christian liberties. The, The Corinthians bring up their freedoms and their rights to do certain things. So 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 what is exactly lawful? What exactly is this field of Christian liberty that we're free to run in? Well, the quotation marks in verse 23 indicate another of the Corinthian slogans. Remember how they're they're writing to Paul, and they're rallying around these rights that they have, and they're saying, all things are lawful for us. All things are lawful for us. We have the freedom to do these things. So just what is it that's lawful for us? What is our Christian liberty? How are we to understand what is lawful for us? I think we can think about it this way. First... We are not free to do anything the Bible calls sin. We know that's out of bounds. Sin is prohibited. But we are free to do anything that the Bible does not call sin. Now that's a pretty wide lane for us to run in. That's a pretty wide lane for us to run in. And that's that's the, the lane that the strong Corinthians, remember the strong brothers here, who say, we have knowledge, we can eat meat. That's the one that they like running in. They really like that. But, second point about what's lawful, we are also not free to do anything the Bible considers to be sin. In chapter 8, 
Paul considers eating meat sacrificed to idols when it does harm to a weaker brother to be sin. See, the strong consider that a narrower lane to run in. They're being constricted. And it's a rip-off in their mind. It's a rip-off of their freedoms. Paul considers it a better lane to run in. That's what he's saying in, uh, in chapter 8, verse 1. Your knowledge of liberty puffs up, but love for the brethren builds up. It's a better lane to run in over here. This is the freedom that Jesus established for us in the New Covenant. It's, it's referred to as the law of Christ. Paul did that. He said that he's under the law of Christ in chapter 9, verse 21. The law of Christ compels him to set aside his raw freedoms and make himself a gospel servant to all. It's the law that Jesus commanded of all of his disciples in John chapter 15, verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And Jesus loves us in a way that brings glory to God. Amen? Yes. Yes. So, so this is what Coach Paul is training Jesus' team to do. You're free to run in the love of God for one another. When you run in this lane, the lane actually broadens so that all that you do, you do to the glory of God. It's a better lane. It's a righteous lane to run in. Well, what things then are helpful to build up? Well, Paul answers that question by giving the final installment of his three-chapter answer about eating meat that has been sacrificed to idols. We all wish that Paul had just answered the Corinthians, yes or no. But applying the law of love is more nuanced than that. Because it teaches us to apply grace rather than law. So here's a brief recap. Let's try to pull all of these things in together. Uh, in Paul's answer about eating meat and about idolatry. First, you are not free to eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols if... It causes a brother or sister to stumble and fall away from the faith. Do that. Don't eat it for the sake of your fellow believer. Forgo that for the sake of your fellow believer. And you are not free to even participate in the temple ceremony where meat is sacrificed to idols. Because that's to practice idolatry when you've been commanded to flee from idolatry. And so don't go there, don't do that, and that's for the sake of your own soul that you take heed lest you fall away from the faith. But what about meat you just buy down at the market? Or, or meat offered to you when you're invited to dinner at the guest of an unbeliever? What about those circumstances? Paul, how would you answer that? Please, please answer yes or no. Well, well, Paul is going to answer the question uh, so that we would not seek our own good, but that we would seek the good of others. That's how Paul is going to answer the question. It's kind of been how he's been answering all these questions. So I'm kind of, I've been thinking this week, got to see just a wee bit of college football yesterday. I'm hoping that maybe one day, maybe one day this fall, one of you here will invite me over to your house on Sunday afternoon to watch football and enjoy a nice, thick, juicy steak. 
or a hot dog. I really like hot dogs. And, and when you do, when you go to Hannaford's to buy that steak or the hot dog, don't bother asking the butcher if it came from a local pagan temple. That's what Paul says. Just don't bother asking him. You know, if you shop at the Hannaford's in Corinth, it is probable that all of the meat in the butcher's case came from a pagan temple. That's just how the distribution channels worked back then. And this, this shouldn't bother your conscience at all. Don't pester the butcher to investigate the tracking label of that hot dog, where it came from and how it got there. There's no need to make this a matter of conscience for yourself. For two reasons. The first is scriptural, so that's a really good one. Because Psalm 24, verse 1, boldly declares that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's all God's. Dear Christian, everything in Hannaford's is the Lord's, and you are free to enjoy it. The second reason is that the butcher doesn't care. Now that... We won't pick that up until you know, we move down to the other things, but the butcher doesn't care. That's implied by the text. The butcher's good is not at stake here, pun intended. You are free to exercise your Christian liberty. Now, maybe your unbelieving friend from work invites you over to watch the football game and sets a plate of, I don't know, nachos in front of you, right there on the coffee table. Nachos and the TV and the game's on. What should you do? Stacked high with spicy beef, cheese, and jalapenos? What should you do? He being a gracious host, that's what he's doing, so you should be a gracious guest. Eat the nachos. Again, without making it a matter of, of conscience. Don't ask him. Don't begin an inquisition about where the food came from. It came from Hannaford's and Corinth. You know that. Just say thank you and enjoy the nachos in the game and your fellowship with this unbeliever. Again, his good is not at stake. It's not a matter of conscience for him because he doesn't bring it up. And you needn't go fishing for matters of conscience for yourself because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Now, what if your friend just as he sets down that platter of nachos in front of you, realizing that you're a Christian, as a matter of his conscience, alerts you to the fact that the spicy beef was delivered to his house just this morning by the temple delivery man after it had been sacrificed to idols. What should you do now? Now, Paul says, do not eat it. Do not eat it. Why? Not because of your conscience, but because of his. Is Paul practicing some kind of situational ethics here? You know, situational ethics is what we apply to so what makes it easier for us. No, not at all. You're not going to make things easier for you, but for him, his conscience. Now you have the opportunity not to harm his conscience, but to seek his good. How so? Well, he knows you're a Christian. And he knows you worship Jesus and no other gods. And for you to eat that meat, knowing that it has been offered in the worship of idols, would damage his conscience about Christians. 
and Christianity. Because he's not sure you should be eating that. So he thinks when you eat, knowing that you're eating meat sacrificed to idols, you know, I guess, I guess these Christians are really just a bunch of hypocrites. They don't follow through on what they say at all. Or he might think, you know, I, you know, I guess I'll just go on worshiping uh, my idols since, you know, I mean, if I were to become a Christian, I could go on worshiping idols anyway. That's what he's doing. You see how his conscience is involved. To him, an unbeliever, you exercising your freedom is a stumbling block to the gospel. His conscience is bothered by what you, as a Christian, are doing. So don't do it. Forgo the nachos so that the gospel remains crystal clear and unhindered for him. You don't want to cause him gospel confusion over a few nachos. You do want to be a gospel servant to him in such a way that the gospel runs free, that it's not encumbered as he looks at it. Now, the last half of verse 29 and verse 30 have caused confusion throughout the centuries. This is just, it, they didn't know where to put this. We want to apply them to the third situation that Paul just laid out because that's where these verses fall. But, but when we do that, they contradict Paul's point, don't they? I mean, wait, wait, wait a minute, what? That's like the opposite of what you just said. So Chom Schreiner uh, reads them as kind of a delayed thought that they should actually apply to the first two situations, and I think that's right. The first two situations that Paul laid out in verses 25 to 27 we can buy meat in the marketplace and eat meat at our unbelieving neighbor's house with confidence in our Christian liberty. That's what that applies to. Because our liberties are determined by God, not by, not by unbelievers. Because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And, and no one can come back at us and bring a charge against us for the proper use of our Christian liberties because we, we, we take what the Lord has given us and we give thanks for them. I eat the meat and I thank the Lord for it. I've done what is right. You cannot bring a charge against me. So we're confident in our Christian liberties when we exercise them rightly. To live distinctly Christian lives in a pagan society, some churches today are tempted to withdraw, to hide, to become their own little Christian subculture, dig a moat, pull up the drawbridge. Paul is enabling us, un, uh, uh, enabling us, excuse me, to engage unbelievers in our pagan culture in a way that remains helps us to remain Christian in our distinction. That's how he's, what he's helping us to do here: to go go to the party if you want to. You're invited to a party. If you feel compelled to go, go. Now it's going to be tricky. Some parties will be uncomfortable. There'll be drinking. There'll be gossip. There'll be, there'll be lots of references to sex. And you'll have to find a way to excuse yourself from those. There are going to be gray areas as you try to navigate social life, societal life, work life. But Jesus calls us to be salt and light. Salt's a preservative. But salt has to make contact in order to be Activated as a preservative. It's not doing anything in the shaker. Seek the good of others by, by engaging and slowing the effects of idolatry in their lives. You might not stop it. You, you might, but you might not stop it, but you can slow it. And, and the, the, the you might part comes with light. Jesus calls us to be salt and light. Light is the glory of the gospel, the truth of salvation in the gospel. We are people who have met Christ. So 
also, we are people who can introduce others to Christ. Nobody else is going to do that. That's up to us. We get to tell them. My God is not a tyrant. My God is not petty about what you eat. He's freeing and loving and liberating. He freed me from my sins. He took away the punishment of God that were justly upon me and my sins. He took it away. He loved me in that way. He paid the price which was his own blood so that I could go free. I'm precious in his sight. I'm beloved in his sight. And so I love him and I follow him. And I obey him because he's a good Lord. He reigns well in my life. And you can have this God too. You can know him. Let me tell you about Jesus. Be a person who seeks the good of others. That's what Paul says. Be a person who seeks the good of others. How do we do that? Well, here are a few ideas that I get from, from this text. First, bridle your conscience. Bridle your preferences. Don't let them grow and take over. Bridle them. If the gospel is bound needlessly to your conscience, you will become a stumbling block to it. Love rejoices in truth. Paul's going to... Paul's gonna, Paul's moving towards love in chapter 13. Love rejoices in truth, but the truth won't get a hearing if you overly sensitize your conscience that shuts down gospel conversations. It hampers the gospel. It weighs it down. People won't give you a hearing. If limiting your preferences results in you being disappointed, because I know that we're worried about that. It's going to be a kind of a disappointing encounter here if I have to limit all my preferences. Accept disappointment. Love does not insist on its own way. If serving others results in you somehow, some way, some shape, some form being offended, accept that offense. Stop being so easily offended. Love is patient and kind. Love is gospel-centered service-committed, and other-oriented. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. That's what Paul's saying. These are ways we can engage people in our pagan culture while maintaining our Christian distinctiveness. This is how we get over ourselves. Not by doing what we want, but by doing what is helpful to others. Not by seeking our own good, but by seeking the good of others. Is that your life, dear Christian? Is it mine? Now here's how Paul wraps up his answer with one grand overarching principle beginning of verse 31. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Do all to the glory of God. Here's the rubric for making decisions in the Christian life. Do all to the glory of God. Look, this is our North Star right here. 
what do I do? I need direction. I need guidance. What do I do next? Here's your North Star. Do all to the glory of God. This is the direction in which we run. This is the purpose in our life. This is what should guide our every decision that we make. The first question to ask when you have a decision to make is, how can I bring glory to God? Whatever it is, do all to the glory of God. And, and so what does that look like? Well, well, Paul paints a picture of what it looks like. It looks like avoiding offending others unnecessarily. Here's, here's one thing. What did, Paul, what did Paul mean in chapter 9 when he said to the Jews, I became as a Jew that I might save some? He meant that with the glory of God as his guiding principle, he tried not to offend the Jews unnecessarily by his own behavior. Don't you see Paul sitting down to eat with his Jewish friends and refusing the meat that has been sacrificed to idols in that situation because of their conscience? Not his, because he knows that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Do you think they would listen to his testimony? Hey, Paul, sit down. Tell me about this. Tell me about this idea you have about our Messiah. You think they would listen to his testimony of Jesus, God's sacrifice for sinners, while Paul's sitting there chewing on a nice big piece of pork that's been offered to God's earlier that day? Of course not. And so he takes this path. Paul takes the same path of being a helpful gospel servant to Gentile friends and, and to those in the church. Did you see that? Especially to the new believers and those who may be weak or immature in their faith. Do all to the glory of God for their sakes. Well, is, is Paul just a spineless people pleaser? I mean, he kind of sounds like a people pleaser. He says, I please all people. You know, in verse 23, he says, I try to please everyone in everything I do. No, Paul's not a people pleaser. It's a restating of what he said in chapter 9, verse 22. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. He's, he's just saying it in a different way. He's not saying that being a good Christian means doing whatever makes people happy. Because that is the ministry philosophy of many churches today. What can we do? I don't know. Let's do something that makes them happy. That can't be right. Because he just said that being a good Christian means doing whatever brings glory to God. That's the focus. He defines what he means in pleasing others in the same verse, right after the comma, by not seeking my own advantage. Here's how I please others. Here's how I do something that's helpful to others, significant in their life, by not seeking my own advantage, but by seeking the advantage of others. Many others, that they may be saved. That's not normal behavior, is it, brothers and sisters? I'm just going to be honest with you. When I walk into a room, wherever I'm at, my default setting is, okay, so, so what's here that I can take advantage of? What's here for Scott? We're a consumer culture. I'm well-trained in consumerism. What people are here, and, and what benefit is there here for me? We even do it when we walk into church on Sunday morning. Hmm, wonder how I'm going to be benefited if at all today. Wonder what advantage there is for me if I get up and go to, go to church early. Paul says that living to the glory of God means living in such a way 
that we prioritize leveraging the gospel in the lives of those around us. There's no me in that sentence. That's what it means for the church to be built up by people who are not puffed up. That's what Paul's describing. See, I want to use my life to help other people to know God. To show believers and unbelievers that Jesus is worthy of our worship. That while Christianity is my life, Christianity is not about me. It's about Jesus Christ. That's why we have to do these things. That's why we have to fight the good fight to glorify God. That's why that has to be our North Star. So that when we're tempted to sin, we fight that temptation. So that we will glorify God in our obedience and His call for us to live sanctified lives. When you go through trials, and I know you do, and some of them are significant. When you go through trials, you choose to praise God in the midst of the hardship. Your praise is a weapon in the midst of trials. Your steadfast worship in hardship shows that Jesus is worthy. Whether you feel like it or not, you follow him. And that's what Paul does. Paul follows Jesus. Pattern your life after the model of Christ. I, I, I know Paul says imitate there. Um, and, and, it's, and it's fine. It's a fine word. But there's some other things that we need to, to, to do. Is, in what way is he imitating? He's imitating in the fact that he's, Jesus has set a pattern for living. And he's, he's, he's living that pattern. And he says you should live that pattern. Jesus' Jesus' life, the way, he, the way he walked is a model in a way for living. I want to get all those words in there. And, and so we're following that model that, Christ, that, uh, that Paul has come to show us in his own living. The pattern of Jesus' life was one of obedience and sacrifice. The pattern of Jesus' life was one of obedience and sacrifice. Are you a follower of Jesus? The model that Paul has particularly in view here is Jesus' self-denial. Jesus' self-denial so that others would come to know and glorify God. And that is what Jesus has sent his apostle to do. When Paul describes himself as an apostle, we often think he's first referring to his apostolic authority. And, and sometimes the apostle does have to defend his apostolic authority. We recognize that he speaks with authority in Scripture. But I think the first thing that Paul would have us think about is his apostolic example. Honestly, when we read, when we read Paul talking about him being an apostle or others being an apostle, He's talking about his example. He is here. Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Paul says, look at how I live and follow me. Because Jesus sent me to model the pattern of his life for you to see and follow. To help others to glorify God. That's what Paul's saying here. And so, I mean, what is Paul saying when he says, what's it like to be an apostle anyway? What's it like to be an apostle? What's Paul describing? Well, he told the Corinthians in chapter 4, verse 9. Look, look back just a couple chapters to chapter 4, verse 9. He's describing his life as an apostle and all of the apostles. And he says, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death. 
because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. We are weak. We are held in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. What's it like to be an apostle? What's it like to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ? It is to stand in all of the consequences of being a Christian. That's what it is. It is to stand in all of the consequences of belonging to Christ while living in this world. Paul did it. And Jesus did it. Jesus lived for the glory of God. He honored his Father's will in perfect obedience to all of his commands, especially the command to love. He engaged mankind by becoming like us in human form, yet, yet without sin, that he might die for us. He enjoyed eating and drinking with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. Yet through it all, he remained distinctly the Son of God. He is uniquely the Savior. He is eternally the King. And He says, follow me. Help others to progress in the gospel of their salvation. And take it on the chin. Stand in the consequences of being my people to the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, our precious servant who washed us clean by his blood, who sacrificed himself for our good and for your glory. May we be more and more like him. We pray that you would make it so. In Christ's name, amen.